Kevin. Good to see you again. Hey, Mike. <laughs> We're back at it. We are. So what are we talking about today, man? Well, you know, I thought it would be fun to... I mean, this is a topic that we could probably do a hundred podcasts on. But to just to talk about, in general, the uh, the what they call the Great American Songbook, which is all those great tunes that were written by those great popular music composers of uh, what the first half of the I guess you'd call it the first half of the 20th century would yeah, that be yeah accurate uh, yeah it is I like this where we just bring up a topic and we just go kind of like like we've done in the past before we started this um, the the term I was taught to use was American popular song which is which is a term defined by this this musician composer both classical and some popular songs named alec wilder he kind of wrote the first definitive book on it which is called american popular song i had a note about that and uh when i was kind of doing a little studying to be before this uh podcast and and uh, it came up at alec wilder's american popular song the great innovators 1900 to 1950. It's on these shelves behind me somewhere. It is Red Book. You know, uh, Alec is uh, beyond opinionated, which makes the book fun to read. Yeah, it says he lists the artists he believes belong to the Great American Songbook canon. Uh, you know, the, the great thing about the book is him identifying, you know, this whole idea recognizing that there's this tradition of songwriting that happened in America that is worthy of study and appreciation by itself. And uh, academia, music colleges, so had not really embraced this. Although the people writing these songs, it, it's, it's really high level songwriting, like leader or something. And it has this tradition that goes from person to person to person, each one kind of influencing each other and it ends up influencing the world or brazil or the beatles are heavily influenced by this this musical language that happened at the beginning it's a fun book it's um it's um i mean some of the songs he hates are my favorite <laughs> he, but he doesn't hide he's not trying to write a scholarly book he's writing a book that about stuff he cares about and he's right. very well informed he had a great um classical ensemble they ran new york alex wilder's octet playing stuff what great composer um pretty respected he happened to be best friends with mary mcpartland mm -hmm. the great jazz pianist she even did an album of, of just his songs um you know just to give a, a reference to our listeners in case they're wondering what we're talking about here um just a few of the names that fall into this category uh, would uh, would give you a good idea about what this music is. Think about um, Irving Berlin. Think about Cole Porter. Think about Richard Rogers. Think about the Gershwins, Hoagy Carmichael, Jerome Kern, Harold Arlen, if you know that name, that and on and on and on. But those were the uh, some of the myriad of composers. Uh, Duke Ellington is considered uh, as a composer uh, of songs that are in the American songbook. Yeah, that's how he made money to fund his big, gigantic product, right. projects, you know. Um, you know, the, 
I had a mentor down at the University of North Florida who sent me on this track, Jack Peterson, the great guitarist and educator who, who didn't have any degrees. This really wonderful guy. Um, and he, he kind of introduced me to thinking about this stuff and learning about it. You know, the first, if you think about like the 1800s, what were popular songs of that time? Mostly not American, right? Songs brought over from Scotland or, or Europe or Irish songs, those kinds mm -hmm. of things. Folk songs that were brought here. Um, the songs that we all know, which is so odd we still know them, are Stephen Foster songs from the late 1800s. Like, you know, Camp Town Races, Sing Them Song, Do Da. I don't even know why I know that song. It's become <laughs> Around the Mountain when she comes, all these songs by him. It's, it's really not until we get to blues and jazz and then this American popular song thing, which, which I, starts with Jerome Kern writing this unbelievable piece of music, um, Showboat. And musicals before that were all Gilbert and Sullivan from England, mm -hmm. which were like these silly little comedy things. They, ca called, it, they called it light <laughs> opera. Yeah. Uh, classical people call it opera buffa. But, you know, it's like Pirates of Penzance, that, that uh -huh. type of stuff, right? And Showboat is deeply serious. It's a story of, you know, uh, descendants of slaves working on a steamboat going up and down the Mississippi. Um, it's the longest running show in the history of Broadway. It's always, mm. supposedly it's always there somewhere. Yeah. Um, when Gershwin wrote Porgy and Bess, he was kind of copying Jerome Kern. He took a story about African-Americans. In Gershwin's case, Porgy and Bess is set in the Gola Islands off of South Carolina. But it's a similar attempt at writing serious music. And you can, you can hear Gershwin his earlier songs are very much like Kern's songs hmm. and then him working to spread out from that and add his own things about it. And there's so much fun in learning the songs and seeing these differences. You know, I'm a jazz musician. I don't, I don't write those kind of songs, but you know, we play all those songs because the harmony and the melodies are so good. Yeah. That's what I wanted to get to eventually here in this conversation as well is that these are the tunes that jazz musicians play. I mean, there are some songs that are written um, specifically for jazz, are, are, uh, but most of the songs that jazz musicians play are these tunes from the American Songbook. And it's, uh, to, to my mind, it's the structure of the songs make them more interesting. Uh, you know, the, the chord changes and, and the, the types of uh, chords that are used within the structure of the song uh, make them more interesting to play than some other types of music. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't say it's most of what we play because there's all kinds of things, but uh, American stand jazz standards we call them jazz yeah. standards would be songs written by jazz musicians that don't have words you know um, when we say a standard we're talking about great American popular songs and you you need to know them and be able to play them in order to do the other stuff kind of you know people will debate this but it's a huge part of our thing but it's not we play lots of stuff that's not that right of course in fact some of the songs we play are still that are not that are specifically different 
because they were trying not to sound like American popular songs. So there's this this influence there. If we're talking about bebop musicians taking the chord changes to American popular song and writing a new melody to it and maybe making the chords sound less like they fit in a key was all their attempts as at creating something new, you know, different mm -hmm. from it. And that's a big part. Even when we're playing a song that's not American popular song, like mm -hmm. Charlie Parker's um, Donnelly, which yeah. is actually the old song Indiana. Or um, he, he wrote the song Quasimodo, which is Embraceable You. There's a little <laughs> joke there. Thelonious, would make, Thelonious Monk would write a song based on American popular song and maybe have some very obscure pun in the title. One of them is a song of his called Evidence. And he said, in order to have evidence, you have to have justice. Just us. That's like just you and me. And it's based on the song, Just You and Me. Huh. Further, Just You and Me is this very unusual song. It's simple and beautiful, but the melody doesn't start until after, like, until like the third beat, which is very unusual. So Monk's evidence, every note is in an odd place. Um, it's like he wrote the whole thing as a theme on Just You, Just Me. It's just an interesting part of the language. So even if they're not playing American popular song, they're using the harmonies from it. Uh -huh. Um, let's let's talk about a few. I don't know. Let me maybe this is unfair, but uh, maybe ask you uh, some of your favorites. I mean, I I'm a big fan of Hoagie Carmichael. I mean, he you know his, his some of his songs are considered some of the greatest songs ever written. Well, Stardust has been ranked by whoever ranks these things. I don't know. It's all. Uh, subjective, of course, but and of course we live in we live in the state of Georgia. But he Georgia wrote that for a, he, mind, he wrote right. that for his sister or aunt. That's not written for the state of Georgia. You know, the interesting thing about Hokey Carmichael is he wasn't trying to write Broadway music. He was trying to write blues. He was profoundly influenced by this early blues period. You know, he grew up up in um, Iowa and Indiana, Indiana um, and. Uh, was mentored by the famous jazz trumpet player Bix Beiderbeck, who was a horrible alcoholic. Um, Hoagie writes beautifully about him being like a teenager and having to go through cornfields to find where Bix had passed out. Um, but no, I mean, his songs, they're amazing songs, and it's definitely part of all this. And Gershwin and Kern... Were, were profoundly influenced by the blues music, African-American music, really, and what they were doing. I remember the first time I heard Rhapsody in Blue, I thought, man, this doesn't sound very bluesy. <laughs> you know, but if you know more about blues, not just the 12-bar Delta blues, but the blues of like a W.C. Handy, the blues of the, mm -hmm. like the early 1900s, not the Delta mm -hmm. more, you know, W.C. Handy was a, a little composer, wrote them down and stuff. He's considered the father of the blues. Um, Robert Johnson's father of Delta Blues. I mean, it's all fathered by, you know, oppression yeah. from the previous sure. generations. But, That's why they call it the blues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, Ho Hokie, I love his songs. I do. He's kind of almost in a category of, his, of himself in that he has this, like there's these notes in like Skylark that, that, don't fit the chords at all on purpose. They're his expression of bluesiness. Mm. Um, they're so odd that a lot of people, when they sing it, they don't sing those notes. <laughs> they should. They, did. They, they make it more vanilla. Hmm. Stardust, 
Skylark, George on My Mind, these are some of the great songs. Yeah. And I, to, to me, one of my favorite songs to sing is the beautiful tune, The Nearness of You. Yeah, right. Um, I didn't remember that was hokey. Yeah. And that's, that's a top 100 jazz song. And, and, and by the way, the, uh, another sort of list of people that, that sort of tell you uh, how important or how dominant this period of music was when you start talking about the singers, the performers who sang these songs uh, as their sort of bread and butter. You know, Ella Fitzgerald, Rosemary Clooney, Nat King Cole, Judy Garland, Billie Holiday, Lena Horne, Frank Sinatra, of course. Yeah. Uh, well, it was the pop music of the day. But, you know, Jerome Kern's probably most famous song is All the Things You Are. Uh, really in the late 20s. It's a difficult song. It changes keys. The melody's difficult to sing. No one would publish it first. They said, this is not singable. No one will like it. It's his most popular song, and we could go into an, you know, like an assisted living place and play it, and half of them would know it and start singing along. I have, there's a recording of Michael Jackson singing it. Really? Over at Disco <laughs> Beat from the 70s. He's young. Um, supposedly the Beatles <laughs> played it, although we have, we don't, they played a lot of standards when they were, you know, getting their start in Germany and learning to do their stuff. They learned all these pop songs. But it's a, it's also a favorite of jazz musicians. All the things, yeah. I mean, it's like uh, jazz one on one. Bill Evans, you know, recorded it many times, and we just changed the title. So he recorded a song called "Some of the Things I Was." <laughs> one thing, one of the things I should be, and he'd play it in a different key, or you know, he he just loved the, the chord progression. is is very interesting. It, it's a masterpiece of a song, and some simple. At the same time, uh, you know, it's, um, yeah, J Jerome Kern, first, George Gershwin, amazing. If, if you want to ask me my favorite, which is impossible, really, but the guy with the most depth, who who's kind of at the end of this, who took all the stuff done before him and really elaborated on it, is Richard Rodgers, uh, both his work with the lyricist Lorenzo Hart and then with Oscar Hammerstein, and... Most of Gershwin's songs or Cole Porter's, they're, they're very similar in certain ways. Not in a bad way, but you could tell, Jerome Kern mm -hmm. especially. But Richard Rodgers, he not only wrote My Funny Valentine, he also wrote My Favorite Things. These two songs, radically different from yeah. him. Now, he has early songs, you know, that are very Gershwin-esque. You know, there's, maybe there's a small hotel. I, I actually don't play many of his earlier songs because you know, I'd rather play Gershwin, I guess. But these later ones are so diverse and beautiful. My Fine Valentine, which people like to hate on, it's a brilliant song with some surprisingly radical things in it. It's got a bridge. It's in, it's in a major key, but you don't even reach that until the bridge, which is like the opposite of what everyone does. And these little things he does with the melody whenever it repeats, it's different every time. They're little simple things, but they're, they're sublime. And uh, that's another song that, uh, that get all of these prominent uh, singers from that generation, uh, virtually all of them, recorded that song one yeah. time or another. Uh, Rogers famously um, <laughs> did not like it to be played like jazz. He did not like jazz. Coltrane recorded My Favorite Things. It's one of his most popular recordings. 
Um, and, and Richard Rodgers despised it. But of course, Colting wasn't trying to play it like Richard Rodgers. He was taking it as a vehicle, you know. And his, his version is brilliant. It's very different from the sound of music, you know. Um, real interesting is that Richard Rodgers um, mentored or had as a, as, a, as a intern or a guy helping him was Stephen Sondheim, who goes on to write these amazing musicals that jazz musicians would consider outside American popular song, but they really are. It's just they're, they're not necessarily as conducive for jazz sometimes although i think anything can be played so but i'm, just, I'm yeah. talking about like what other people might say um it, it, it's just this tradition going on it, it's still going and my other favorite person who writes in this same kind of format isn't even america is antonio carlos jobin his songs they're you know they're a little later than richard rogers they elaborate even more on him and they're even more complicated and you don't even need to know they're complicated. It's right. They don't thing. sound complicated. But he's using the same harmonies. He's using yeah. the same harmonies. And so now the rhythms are different, mm -hmm. but he's using right. the same song forms and harmonies and spinning them and doing different things. Um, even, I'm going to do this song this, this Friday. I have a concert coming up with a wonderful singer, um, Jennifer Roblinsky. And we're doing a song of his called The Waters of March, which is so amazing because it doesn't have a form. It's a big circle and you can't say A starts here or B there. And he did that on purpose to make it sound like water all over the planet or something. It's, I don't know another song like it. Mm -hmm. Like you, it's very difficult to write down because it would be just be measure after measure after measure, no sections. Well, one of my favorite songs by him is Desafinado. Oh, wow. And the, what's interesting about Desafinado, if you're playing it and somebody who's playing with you has not played the song before, it can mess them up when you get to the bridge because the last couple of measures of the second verse is the first couple of measures of the bridge. Yeah, he overlaps it. So, He's, he so steals four measures from one section <laughs> and adds them to the middle section, right? That's right. So, such a big deal that, um, you know, the, the Bible of songs for jazz musicians used to be this thing called the real book, which comes out Berkeley College of Music, and it was illegal because they didn't pay any copyrights for it. Right. And a mm -hmm. lot of students transcribed the song. That the version of Desafinado in that book is missing those four measures. <laughs> just if you're playing with instrumentalists, you don't know the song, it doesn't matter. But if you're reading that and playing with a singer, good luck. Because you'll end the song and they have more lyrics. Uh, that has happened right. all the time. You know, the thing about studying these songs, because I never I never wanted to write a Broadway musical or or any of that. I love musicals, though. But I, that wasn't why I'm, I'm learning jazz. But studying them, not... Just the individual songs. You know, what Jack Peterson had me do was we would spend a month on one composer and go through all their songs and learn them and take them apart and find the favorites recording. Then we'd go to the next composer. And he would have me write a song for each of the composers, kind of like uh, mimicking them, but not meant to be played. Just, just, yeah, just as an exercise. Yeah. And keep in mind, Jack is he's teaching academia, but he doesn't, he's not being academic about it. He learned his mentor was the great jazz pianist, Red Garland. He's coming from a from a street jazz perspective and understanding the songs. And 
what I really got about this wasn't just like specifics of how songs work, but it helped me understand how musicians remember so many songs, how they remember thousands of songs. And that has helped me in all these other things. Talk a little bit more about that. What is what is it that allows to to remember so many songs? Well, what you need to do is study all those composers one month at a time, <laughs> and then you understand. No, I, I mean it's 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 a little hard to exp- explain, but you know I teach people this, but it's it's a process. But it's basically not playing the song by rote from beginning to end. You just memorize it. I think anyone who who is done some music in their time has like memorized a few pieces of music and then when they go to another one they eventually kind of forget the first one <laughs> uh, who knows what that how many pieces it takes to do. or they'll be playing a piece and they get lost in the middle and they can't just start there they have to go all the way back to the beginning you know the final. that's kind of a lower level of knowing a song and what you do as you as you see the way these people com- construct the song the people these composers is that they're using shapes and forms and development of melody. They're not just sitting down and hearing stuff and writing it down. And this includes Irving Berlin, who mm-hmm. did not read or write mm-hmm. music, and he only played in the key of G-flat. That's true. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a video of him, Steinway, after he, he was already famous, Steinway made him a piano. Uh, it's an extra foot wide because they put a lever on it in the front that you could pull out and then slide the keyboard left or right <laughs> to transpose to other keys mechanically. Yes. You know, so he could play in other keys. He could G still flat. play in G flat, but it would be in another key. So here is this guy who doesn't know any music theory formally or even you know names of chords or anything, read or write, and he is using the same structures mm-hmm. as these other people, which is the song has a form, right? Each, each little section is, has a little theme, and they do things with mm-hmm. the theme. The analogy I try to give to people about this is that when you, if I told you a sentence, the piano is black, it's easy to remember because you already know those words. But if I had just gave you that number of letters to remember, and they weren't in words, like X, Q, Y, that's a lot harder to remember. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And then you got to take in the fact that when we were kids, we learned how to make the letters ourselves. Like it took a lot of effort to learn to make the letters. Yeah. I, you know, I don't have a lot of memories of young child, but I remember <laughs> learning my alphabet and arguing with the teacher, of course, because she kept telling me that the way to remember what an H was, was that it looked like a house. Well, all the houses in my neighborhood were A-framed. <laughs> I was like, no, the A looks like a house, you know. I, you know, and I, I was always a difficult student, you know. But if you just think about the process it took, you had to learn those little parts, yeah, you know, and then go on. Now, now, you know, I remember my daughter, very, very young, learned how to write her name, but she didn't know the letters really. She just learned like the motions, right? Uh-huh. But we use it to teach her letters. Right. Oh, she was precocious. <laughs> of course, we're gonna say that. So. So, sort of circling back to our theme about what you learn learning music, I, uh, you know, the American Songbook uh, and the songs of the American Songbook are not only the standards that musicians continue to play and probably forever will will play will gravitate to the guy. A lot of people who made their livings in rock and roll 
and we just thought they had sort of harsh, hard voices that screamed out rock and roll. When, later they did albums, or, or, or folk singing, like James Taylor did a lot of, uh, did albums with these, these songs, American songbook songs. I'm, I'm remembering famously Rod Stewart, who recorded a couple of albums, at least two that I'm, that I'm aware of, of American songbook tunes. In fact, I saw him in concert once and he did his rock and roll stuff the first half. So I guess what, what we learn learning music, what we learn learning American songbook tunes is we learn an enduring structure. I feel like there's two big takeaways I took from all this work I did with Jack Pearson studying these songs. One, it was great to see that all of these musicians, completely different from each other, from Joe Bean to Jerome Kern, um, that they were part of a craft and a tradition relaying to each other. It wasn't just some talented guy who heard music and wrote it down. It wasn't this mysterious thing. It's, it's part of a work. And therefore, I could do it. Not say I could be as great, but it's not this magical talent-based thing, mm -hmm. you know. It's 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 being connected to this, and the other part of it was again just like where does individuality come from in creation or whatever it is, and it's not from being in a vacuum. Joe Beam has all these song structures, and it's not about rules like you have to do this or do that. The fact that these people had that in their songs isn't like against them being unique it just supports it 